Hello, listeners. As an enhancement to your listening experience, I am now going to present these archive episodes unedited in their entirety, which includes all of my afterthoughts. So, continue listening after the outro music if you want to hear what I thought of the episode. And if you are enjoying the podcast, please support it by going to the homepage spacerockethistory.com and clicking on the orange donate button or the Patreon link. Thanks. We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things, not because they are easy, but because they are hard. Godspeed, John Glenn. Roger, zero G, and I feel fine. Can I feel out? Okay, I'm out. How does it feel for the United States to be the new record holder? At last, huh? When that baby lights, there's no doubt about it. Liftoff. We have a liftoff. 32 minutes past the hour. Liftoff on Apollo 11. Houston, uh, Tranquility Base here. The Eagle has landed. That's one small step for man. One giant leap for mankind. Hello and welcome. This is Michael Annis and you're listening to episode 215 of the Space Rocket History Podcast. And now, Apollo 11, Translunar Injection. Shut down right on time. 101.4 by 103.6. Roger, shut down and we copy 101.4 by 103.6. Apollo 11, this is Houston. You are confirmed to go for orbit. Armstrong, Aldrin, and Collins reached Earth orbit. They were now suspended gently in their straps. The world outside their window was breathtaking. The beautiful clouds and the seaside majestically and silently moved by. The crew was in an upside-down position, in that their heads were pointed down toward the earth and their feet toward the blackness of space. This was the position in which they would remain for the next two and a half hours in earth orbit, as they prepared themselves and their machine for the next big step, the translunar injection burn which would propel them toward the moon. The reason for the heads-down attitude was to allow the sextant in the belly of the command module to point up at the stars for one of the most important things Mike Collins had to do, which was take a couple of star sightings to make sure that their guidance and navigational equipment was working properly before they decided to take the plunge and lead the safety of Earth's orbit. The first few minutes in orbit were busy. A long checklist had to be followed to convert the spacecraft from a passive payload to an active orbiter. Between Bermuda and the Canary Islands, Collins worked his way swiftly through two pages of miscellaneous chores, such as opening and closing circuit breakers, throwing switches, and reading instructions for Neil and Buzz to do likewise. Then, finally, all three astronauts could remove their helmets and gloves. This is Apollo Control. The Canary Island Station has acquisition of Apollo 11 now. We'll continue to stand by live for any air-to-ground communication. 
We're showing an orbital weight of the combined vehicles of 297,914 pounds. Apollo 11, this is Houston through Canary, over. Hi, Roger, I read you loud and clear, our insertion checklist is complete, and uh, we have no abnormalities. Uh, Roger, and uh, I'd like to pass up your delta azimuth correction at this time, if you're ready to copy. Okay, uh, Delta Azimuth correction is plus zero decimal two two. That is plus decimal two two, and we do recommend the P-52 alignment, over. Okay, we'll go ahead with the P-52 and uh, the parking angle plus zero decimal two two. Uh, Roger, and your LOS time at Canary is two three three seven, over. Collins folded down the bottom half of his couch and slipped over it into the lower equipment bay. Here, there were more switch panels plus lockers full of equipment which Collins was assigned to unpack and distribute. Then, the all-important navigational instruments, the sextant and the telescope had to be checked. Collins moved slowly and cautiously with no unnecessary head movements, for this is the phase of flight that he had been warned about. This was the first chance he would have to slosh and swirl his inner ear fluid, the first chance to make himself sick, and he desperately wanted to avoid that, not only on general principles, but specifically because Collins was the only one trained to perform the transposition and docking maneuver, which was essential to retrieving the lunar module from its position behind them, buried inside the top of the Saturn. Collins moved over underneath Neil's couch and handed Neil a helmet stowage bag and a tool for turning a glycol valve. Then he checked out the main oxygen pressure regulator and unpacked a couple of cameras for Buzz to use. Apollo 11, Apollo 11, this is Houston through Tanana Reeve, over. Hey, Houston, Apollo 11, Tanana Reeve, on VHF-8, Sunset, how do you read, over? Ah, Roger, 11, this is Houston, uh, we're reading you uh, loud and fairly clearly. For your information, Canary Radar shows you in a 103.0 by 103.0 orbit, over. Beautiful. Roger, we concur. Apollo 11 passed over Tanana Reeve Station on the island of Madagascar. Carnarvon, Australia would be next, followed by the U.S. one last time, then around again to the Middle Pacific Ocean, where the translunar injection burn should occur. At T plus 38 minutes, it was time to take a star sighting. Collins moved into position at the navigator's console in the middle of the lower equipment bay. He unpacked and installed two eyepieces, one for the sextant and one for the telescope, and he attached a portable handhold on either side of them. At this point, Collins realized he needed handholds to maintain position because he kept floating up. It was not a big problem, but it was annoying. Collins jettisoned the protective cover over the optics and peered out through the telescope. 
What he saw was disappointing. Only the brightest stars were visible through the telescope, and it was difficult to recognize them when they were not accompanied by the dimmer stars which give each constellation its distinctive visual pattern. The situation was not helped by the fact that Collins was looking for Min, Kent, and Nuki, two of the more nondescript Apollo navigation stars. Stars like Antares are very easy to find, just behind the head of the Scorpion constellation, and it has a distinctive reddish color as well. Menkent, on the other hand, is hard to find unless the entire constellation Centaurus is clearly visible, and Noonkey in Sagittarius is not much easier. But, unlike the Gemini, the Apollo had a computer tied to the optics, and Collins used it for help. The computer responded by swinging the sextant around until it pointed at where it calculated Min Kent to be. And there it was, in plain view. Then it was a simple task for Collins to align crosshairs precisely on it and push a button at the instant of alignment. Next, Collins repeated the procedure with Noonkey, and the computer feedback said that his measurement differed from its stored star angle by 0.01 degree, which was a very good job. With the star check behind him, Collins could breathe easier. Meanwhile, about an hour after liftoff, Apollo 11 made it over Australia, Carnarvon, and then Honeysuckle. Things had gone well, and Apollo 11 was on schedule. The crew worked on sending some television pictures as they reached Baja, California. As Apollo 11 passed over Mexico, they tried to relay TV signals to Houston via the huge antenna at Goldstone, California, but they were at such a shallow angle that they only got about a minute's worth of TV through. At least all the equipment was working, and they did decide that the monitor unit dangling from a separate cable was definitely unhandy. Next time they would tape it to the top of the camera. Now the TV camera and anything else floating around had to be stowed away in preparation for the TLI burn. Loose equipment can cause quite a bit of damage. The TV camera could turn into a dangerous projectile at the instant the rocket engine lights for the translunar injection burn. Just because something is weightless in space doesn't mean it has lost any of its mass. It still contains the same number of molecules and, if thrown, can do just as much damage when it hits something as it would do on Earth. Now, all attention turned to the upcoming translunar injection burn. Based on data from the worldwide tracking network of ground stations, naval ships, and airborne radar planes, the computers in Houston analyzed Apollo 11's trajectory and adjusted the planned flight path. It was the classic three-body mathematical problem that would have been impossible without big mainframe computers. The Earth, Moon, and spaceship were all in motion, the pull of each on the other constantly varying 
with the moon itself moving in its orbit at 2,000 miles an hour. The computer dealt with these lengthy equations by simply running them over and over again, plugging in one number after another until the right answer showed up. In this brute force fashion, the IBM mainframe in Houston determined that at 2 hours, 44 minutes, and 16 seconds into the mission, the spacecraft would be lined up with a point in the void where the moon would arrive three days later. NASA radioed these instructions to the S-4B stage. If the rocket fired at that instant and burned for exactly 5 minutes and 47 seconds, the spacecraft would reach a velocity of 24,000 miles per hour, which was enough momentum to coast up to the top of the Earth's gravitational hill and down into the valley of the moon's gravitation. Also, the astronauts had to write down a long list of numbers which would tell them how to get home should some disaster strike after translunar injection, and they were not able to talk to mission control. At one time, it had been planned to equip the command module with a teleprinter, which would have been ideal for relaying columns of numbers, but a teleprinter was deemed an unnecessary frill. So now it was necessary for Bruce McCandless in Mission Control in Houston to read each digit and for Mike Collins to write them all down on his checklist and read them all back to Bruce. By the time this chore was finished, Apollo 11 had flown past the United States and was over the southern Atlantic. With less than an hour before translunar injection, the crew returned to their couch and got strapped in and put their helmets and gloves back on. This was a precaution in case the Saturn should blow up and damage the command module badly enough to cause them to lose cabin pressure. As they passed over western Australia at T plus 2 hours 26 minutes, Houston relayed to Collins, Armstrong, and Aldrin through Carnarvon formal permission to go to the moon. Apollo 11, this is Houston. You are go for TLI. Over. Apollo 11, thank you. Roger that. Normally, as Apollo 11 passed over the rest of Australia, they would experience a long, quiet time over the Pacific, out of radio range but not this time. Specially equipped jet transports circled below them in the darkness, serving as a communications link to Houston in order to relay every last detail of the translunar injection burn to Houston's computers, which would immediately begin to chart their course to keep track of their trajectory and to let them know if corrections were necessary. Apollo 11, this is Houston. Uh... We just got telemetry back on your booster, and it's looking good. Roger, Alan, looks good here. Houston, roger up. The S-4B third stage was now doing its job, preparing to pump hydrogen and oxygen to its engine, holding itself rigidly pointed in the direction the computers have selected. Collins, Armstrong, and Aldrin had no control over the intricacies of the S-4B. They merely observed from some lights on the panel that the S-4B was counting down to ignition. 
And we're a minute from ignition. Apollo 11, this is Houston. Uh, slightly less than one minute to ignition, and everything is go. Right here. Ignition. We confirm ignition, and the thrust is go. When the booster finally lit, Neil said, Whew! while Collins experienced both relief and tension. The crew was on their way to the moon now, with one more hurdle behind them, but only if the stage continued to burn. If it shut down prematurely, they would be in serious trouble on a strange trajectory that would require some fancy computations on Houston's part and some swift and accurate work for the crew using the service module engine to get them back to Earth. There was also the danger of Apollo 11 missing the moon entirely and winding up in a permanent orbit around the sun. But again, computers, machines, and men interacted with mesmerizing accuracy. Guidance looking good. Velocity 26,000 feet per second. Armstrong commented, pressure looks good. He was referring to the S-4B's fuel and oxidizer supply. Neil was in the left-hand couch with the gauges in front of him. Buzz was in the center with the computer, and Collins was in the right seat with very little to do other than keep track of how long the engine had been burning. The command module had five windows, and they are all numbered from left to right. Neil had window one at his left elbow and window two directly in front of him. There was a circular porthole in the hatch above Buzz's head. Window four was directly in front of Collins. It was small and wedge-shaped, matching window two, while window five matched window one, and it was at Collins' right elbow. While looking out the window, Collins noticed some strange lights out there. He reported, Flashes out window five. I'm not sure. It could be lightning, or it could be something to do with the engine. Continual flashes. Buzz commented on the S-4B. About two degrees off in pitch. Neil replied, Yes, wouldn't worry too much about that. Then Houston joined the conversation. Apollo 11, this is Houston at one minute. Trajectory and guidance look good, and the stage is good. Over. Apollo 11, Roger. Collins was amazed that he could see evidence of the engine operating as it was mounted on the tail of the S-4B 110 feet behind them. As far as Collins knew, no one except the Gemini crews who experienced firing the nose-mouthed Agena engine had ever seen anything like the constant flashes and incessant fireflies he saw out of his window. Collins decided Neil might enjoy the show also and laughingly told Neil, don't look out window one. If it looks like what I see out window five, you don't want to look at it. Why? asked Buzz. I don't see anything, says Neil. You don't? There are flashes out there, said Collins. Neil said, oh, I see a little flashing out there, yes. Armstrong rarely admitted surprise. Then Collins tried it on Buzz. You see that, right, Buzz? 
Just watch window five for a second. See it? Yes, yes, said Buzz. Everything's just kind of sparks flying out there. Colin started to explain to Buzz what he had seen when suddenly he felt a lurch, but it was gone as quickly as it came, just as if the Saturn had abruptly switched gears. The astronauts discussed it and agreed that it was the result of a program shift in the ratio of fuel to oxidizer flowing into the engine. Meanwhile, the burn continued. Coming up on 27,000 feet per second. Telemetry and radar tracking both solid. Velocity 27,800 feet per second. What an amazing machine. Consider this. The S-4B is taking liquid hydrogen stored at 420 degrees Fahrenheit below zero and liquid oxygen at 293 degrees below zero and burning them seconds later at over 4,000 degrees. Apollo 11, this is Houston. Thrust is good. Everything's still looking good. Roger. We're two and a half minutes into this burn. Still have another three minutes to go. And velocity exceeds 29,000 feet per second, building up toward 30,000 feet per second. After Houston reported everything was still looking good, the crew relaxed a bit and started to enjoy the ride. They were experiencing about 1G, pushing them back into their seats, with almost the same force they were accustomed to on Earth. It felt like a little more than 1G, and the S-4B was still not smooth. In fact, Buzz called it just a little tiny bit rattly. But it was getting the job done, and their onboard computer was displaying numbers which were very close to perfection. Present altitude 115 nautical miles. Apollo 11, this is Houston, around three and a half minutes. You're still looking good. Your predicted cutoff is right on the nominal. Patrick, Apollo 11, let's go. 31,200 feet per second now. Altitude 125 nautical miles. Velocity 32,000 feet per second. Altitude 130 miles. The shaking increased a little toward the end of the burn, and Buzz was concerned that it might dislodge the movie camera he installed in a bracket over Colin's head. Buzz said, I hope that camera doesn't fall on your face, Mike. Collins replied, no problem because I've checked it. It's locked in there pretty well. Won't hurt this visor anyway. Apollo 11 was climbing out of the darkness into the dawn, and since they were pointed due east, the sun was beaming directly into their windows, especially windows 2 and 4. But Armstrong had the foresight to install a piece of cardboard over his window to enable him to continue to read the gauges 
describing the S-4B's operation. One minute left to burn. Velocity is 33,000 feet per second, altitude 142 and a half nautical miles. Apollo 11, this is Houston. You are go at five minutes. Roger, we're go. 34,000 feet per second now, altitude 152. Thirty-five thousand feet per second. Cut off. We're showing velocity thirty-five thousand five hundred seventy feet per second. Altitude one hundred seventy-seven nautical miles. Apollo eleven, this is Houston. We show show cut off, and uh, we copy the numbers and now in sixty-two. Armstrong confirmed. We have cut off, and then congratulated the ground, telling them that all Saturn stages gave them a magnificent ride. Yeah, Houston, Apollo 11 at Saturn gave us a magnificent ride. All right, your 11, we'll pass that on, and it certainly looks like you're well on your way now. That was Neil Armstrong praising the launch vehicle. We, got, uh, we have no complaints with any of the three stages uh, on that. That ride, it was uh, beautiful. Uh, Roger, we copy. Uh, no transients at staging of any significance, over. That's right, it was all, uh, all a good ride. Houston, Roger out. The S-4B started the burn at 100 miles altitude, and it reached only about 177 miles at cutoff. But they were climbing rapidly. At the instant of shutdown, Buzz recorded their velocity at 35,579 feet per second, more than enough to escape from the Earth's gravitational field. As they proceed outbound, this number will get smaller and smaller until the tug of the moon's gravity exceeds that of the Earth, and then they will start speeding up again. In nine hours, when they are scheduled to make their first mid-course correction, they will be 57,000 miles from Earth. But it would turn out that the S-4B burn was so precise that three of the four mid-course corrections were canceled. The next milestone will be transposition, docking, and extraction. Mike Collins will return to the spotlight. Salutations from the foothills of North Carolina. This is Michael Annis, your host, and I wanted to say thanks for listening to episode 215 of the Space Rocket History Podcast, entitled Apollo 11 Translunar Injection. Hope you enjoyed that episode. I really did. It was a pleasure to bring it to you. I want to give a big shout out to all my longtime listeners. Thanks for staying subscribed and extend a warm welcome to my new listeners. I'm glad you're here. Make sure you sign up for the email list and connect with me on Twitter and Facebook. You can do all of that as well as download every episode of the podcast on the homepage, spacerockethistory.com. Today, we salute my Patreon donors. Patreon donors give a small amount monthly to support the podcast. 
Thanks, Patreon donors who honored your pledge this month. We had a 99.3% retention rate. Thank you very much. I had a few afterthoughts about this week's episode. First of all, I want to give credit to Mike Collins and his book, Carrying the Fire, An Astronaut's Journey. A lot of the details for this episode came from that book. Well, they are on the way to the moon now, and it is fantastic. (laughs) I cannot wait for them to get to the moon. What a great performance from all three stages of the Saturn V. My hat is off to Von Braun, his engineers, North American Stormy, and all the people that worked on it. What a great accomplishment. Armstrong called it a magnificent ride, so he liked it too. Did you think the steely-eyed missile men kind of downplayed the translunar injection? (laughs) You know they had to be excited. That successful burn meant that they were going to the moon. I guess they didn't want to show too much excitement, because translunar injection was just one in a series of things that had to happen to get to land on the moon. Now I have a little bit of trivia from Mike Collins' book. You remember when the astronauts had to put their gloves and helmets back on in preparation for the translunar injection burn in case there was some type of problem such as an explosion? (laughs) Well, Collins didn't think that precaution made much sense. He wrote in his book, quote, It doesn't make a lot of sense, really, because should the command module be that badly damaged, certainly the service module engine, which is required to get down out of orbit, would also be damaged beyond use, not to mention the damage to the crew. But anyway, the checklist says helmet and gloves on, so that's the way it is, end quote. I do think it was a good precaution. You know, he has a point about likely it would have destroyed the service module too, but you never know exactly what's going to happen with an explosion. So I thought that was a worthwhile precaution. But that's just me, and I'm not an expert, nor am I Mike Collins, so my opinion doesn't count very much at all. Now, (laughs) Now, I do have one clip left over from the launch episodes and I've been trying to find some place to put it in so right here I'm going to put it in right in, during my comments. Here it goes. Uh, three minutes before this launch this morning both the Associated Press and United Press International machines clattered to a stop and not another word was transmitted on those machines which carry news from all around the world of course on the main trunk wires of the AP and the UP Nothing came along again until after the liftoff of Apollo 11. It seemed that the whole world probably uh, stopped uh, its heart in its mouth to await uh, this historic moment as man uh, set out uh, on the great adventure, the adventure to escape from his own planet and to set foot on a distant one. So the wire service shut down just before launch. That is interesting. It was a really, really big event, the launch of Apollo 11. Okay, I posted some pictures and the audio for this week's episode on the webpage spacerockethistory.com. Hope you check that out. I was very pleased to receive several new donations to support the podcast over the past couple of weeks. Peter C. from Australia donated at the Apollo level and earned his rocket emoji. 
Robert E. donated at the Mercury level and earned his rocket emoji as well. Futurama King donated at the Sputnik level and earned his satellite emoji. Steve C. donated at the Gemini level. Alan M. donated at the Soyuz level. Mark U. donated at the Mercury level. Patrick N. donated at the Vostok level, as well as Niles L. from Norway donated at the Vostok level. Stephen L. pledged on Patreon at the Apollo level and earned his moon emoji. Ronald B. increased his pledge on Patreon from the Soyuz level to the Gemini level. Andreas K. pledged on Patreon at the Mercury level. Shane P., Edmund P., Mike M., Jim B., and Dirk R. all pledged on Patreon at the Vostok level. Sincere thanks, all donors. I certainly do appreciate it. So that brings the total Patreons to 121. That is 29 short of the goal of 150 before the end of the year. And our overall donors have reached 207 with a goal of reaching 300. For those of you who are enjoying the content provided here and have not donated yet in 2017, please consider supporting the podcast if you're financially able. Keep in mind that Space Rocket History is entirely listener-funded, and I depend upon your financial support to keep the podcast going. You don't have to donate much. You can make a one-time donation of $10 at the Vostok level or sign up with Patreon for a dollar per month donation, sort of like a volunteer subscription. Just go to the homepage and click on one of the links on the top right side of the page and begin your support of the Space Rocket History Podcast. For those of you who have already donated for 2017, I certainly appreciate it. I have several of these Orion Desk Model Kits to give out. The model is of an Orion Spacecraft Service Module and Solar Arrays. It's made out of cardstock. To assemble, you just push out the pre-cut parts and fold them together. To select a winner, I gave every donor a number from 1 to 207. I put the range in Google's random number generator and got the number 19. Donor number 19 is Magnus Badger. Magnus, if you could email me, mike at spacerockethistory.com, and tell me your address, I will mail this out to you. Now, I have just a few more of these models, so we can have another drawing next week. For the 2017 donor group. I was pleased to see the podcast received three new five-star ratings on iTunes over the past couple of weeks. I'd like to thank Drink Butter, PHRN255, and Juby123 for taking the time and effort to write a very kind review and giving the podcast the all-important five-star ratings. Thank you very much. I want to encourage everyone to share the podcast, feel free to link the homepage or a particular episode on all social media. And thanks to those who've already done so. Here's Mrs. SRH with the retweeters for the month of June. Hello listeners, this is Mrs. SRH with the retweeters for June. 1202 Alarm, Agile Detector, Ashley James Lee, Aviatrix 79, Alewick, Alex 374, Beacon 64, Bert at Home, Bonner to You, Buddy P. Murphy, Chris Towers, Craig Libert, Cowboy Sci-Fi Bot, David B. Nugent, DJ Sticky Boots, DM Denovi, 
Ingolstadt B, Escape Brewery, Farfell 54, Futurama King, Herr Busch, Indy TM42, Jacob Hahn, J. Stevens 21679, Kadavi 1202, KHS Astronomy, Lanyard 73, M. Lunyon, Man from Vanuatu, Matt Jenkins 1979, Mech Engineer 2, Michael Hoadley, My Turn Racing, Peewee 888, Parkhurst P1, Rapid Mustang, Rocket Noob, Rob J. Mack, Shinar Squirrel, Space Flash News, Skibby, Tardomatic, The Ends Podcast, The J.R. Flyboy, The Rocketry Show, This Is Alex Boyd, Wayne Neville 75, Wet Hog, and W. Ocean Memorial. Thanks for retweeting Space Rocket History. This is the end of content for this episode. You're welcome to stay and listen to my off-topic thoughts if you want. Thanks for sticking around, folks. Hope you enjoyed that episode. Next week, we will continue with Apollo 11 with the transposition, docking, and extraction. In podcast news, June had the fourth highest downloads so far. In June, the podcast was downloaded in 94 countries around the world. These are the top 10 countries with the most episode downloads in June. Listen carefully. There are some surprises in here. Number one, U.S. Number two, U.K. Number three, Australia moves up to third place. Number four, Germany drops to fourth place. Number five, Japan moves to fifth place. Number six, Canada drops to sixth place. Number seven, Netherlands moves up. France moves up to eight. Denmark moves up to nine. And Austria moves up to 10. How about that? I think that is the first time Australia has been in third position. So a big shout out to all the Aussies down there. And I think that's the highest Japan has been so far too. Fifth position. So congratulations to Japan. Last week I had a listener very correctly point out that uh, Walter Cronkite made a mistake during the uh, launch episode. So I wanted to make sure everyone understood. Walter was on live TV and he sometimes incorrectly identifies things when he gets excited or just gets a little ahead of himself. For instance, I can think of a clip back a good while ago where he accidentally called the moon the earth. But I knew what he was talking about. It's it's obvious what he's meaning to say in those things. And I guess I'm just assuming that you know that too. So keep in mind that if you hear something a little strange come out of Walter's mouth, he probably made a little mistake. After all, it was live TV and he only had one shot at it. And he was ad-libbing quite a bit. I think the listener was referring to the time he called the S4B stage the fourth stage instead of the third stage. So that was a a little Walter mistake in the heat of the moment. All right, he does a good job in general, and I really enjoy his voice and hearing him again. Okay, that's about all I have for this week. I'll try to have episode 216 up by next Thursday. So long for now.